Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And today we come to you with a super wicked awesome special surprise episode. It's probably not a surprise to you guys because you never know what we're going to bring you, but it is a surprise to us because we never intended to do this, but we just came from a two-day conference, which was wicked awesome, and we learned so many things. We just have to share them with you. Well, I think Tess learned more than me. A lot of it was bioinformatics, so I felt it was over my head. I, I, I don't think that's true for a second. It was pretty evenly split between bioinformatics and human microbiome, which is not my wheelhouse, but your wheelhouse. We'll see. All right. Well, so we went to this conference. It was called the Microbiome Data Congress, and it happened in Boston and lasted two days. And it featured a number of different, really fantastic speakers. And even from the people who were there, they were like, wow, this is an amazing lineup. And I was like, thank you, because I helped plan it. But it was pretty incredible. I've never really been to a conference with this level of talks. So we're here to tell you that um, we're not going to go into the nitty gritties of all the talks. We're not going to touch upon all of them either. But we're just here to tell you some of the big takeaways that we had in this whole two-day adventure. So you want to talk about the first presentation? Well, I was, I was thinking maybe let's take a, a step back and talk about the conference as a whole. Okay. Like there were some running themes that just seemed to continuously pop up that I think is sort of important to talk about first before we dive into the, the first talks and, and specifically... And I think like there is this running theme of just this aspect that we're used words that we don't necessarily have any definitions for. For instance. I mean, for me, that would have to be healthy microbiome. Yes. I mean, that's one that everyone is using. Like we use healthy microbiome versus a disease microbiome, but no one actually knows what a healthy microbiome is. Right. We know when it looks, when it's bad. We know when it's bad. And we know what the opposite of bad is, but sometimes the opposite of bad is not healthy. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting thing. And I think it was really nice to hear the community as a whole is also like, yeah, we don't know. We use these words because it makes sense and it helps to tell the story of what the opposite of bad is. We don't necessarily know what a healthy microbiome looks like. It may be different for every single person. But a bad microbiome looks sort of the same for every single person. Right. Or the symptoms are the same, more or less. The other thing that I think that is constantly being talked about in the field is what is a strain, right? So that question came up maybe four or five times. And if you think you have an answer, you don't. Go check yourself because you're wrong. Because there is no answer. I don't think there is an answer to what is a strain. Well, what even is a species? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, we can go up the, the taxonomic identification. We call microbes things because it's what we are capable of calling them. I mean, it's kind of like your name is John. That's what I call you. I put you in the bucket of John. But you're not like every other John in the entire world. Every John's different. Right. And there are several presentations that are showing that the same quote-unquote species or even the same strain were acting differently because they had different genes. Uh, their just genetic makeup was different from each one and was acting differently. Yeah, and then like, what is that difference of the genetic makeup that makes it different enough to put it in a different bucket? 
And that really depends, I think, like on your question and what you're overall studying and where that difference is occurring. And so I think that's just like, it's an interesting question that is never going to have an answer. And it's only a question because humans like to label everything and stick things in little buckets. We don't do well with giant blurry gray lines. We like buckets. Despite really the field being around for 20 years, we still don't know a whole lot about that gray area. But it's also like 20 years. That's not that long. I mean, even microbiology has only been around since the late 19th century. I mean, well, medical microbiology, I think we can say, has been around since the late 19th century. And everything kind of stems from medical microbiology. Yeah. And that's not even that long when you think of astronomy has been around since the Greeks. As far as sciences go, microbiology is young. Microbiome is even younger. It's only 20 years old. It's a baby. I think another thing was like how to try to find the missing pieces of the puzzle. Or what are the missing pieces of the puzzle? Right. We don't necessarily even know what the picture is that we're trying to create. We're just trying to create a picture. And a lot of labs were trying to find those pieces using slightly different methods. Yeah, and I think that's also like a really, if you're a graduate student, if you're an undergraduate student, if you're in any sort of place where you're doing, exper- even if you're a researcher doing experimental design and you're like, I don't know. It's like, no one knows. We all just are taking the best shot that we have and there are standards and there are best practices, but there's no way to really know like, what is enough sampling? Did you do the right method? Are you annotating this the correct way? I think the the other thing that kind of came up quite a bit, and maybe this will be like the last one that we discuss kind of in this broad aspect before we jump into some of the talks, is this idea of having a database-independent analysis or database-independent approach, which is scary because it's like saying, you know, the databases are created so that we can say, okay, I have this thing and I want to know if this thing is like anything else. So you ask the database, hey, database, do you have this thing in you? And the database is like, yeah, I have something that's sort of like that and I want to say that it has this function. You're like, great, that's probably correct. But we don't know. And so like taking away that database that has any sense of known and then asking unknowns to address your unknowns, it's like you're losing a lot of control. But it may be a great way to sort of find these novel things or to not get trapped into erroneous approaches and analyzing the microbiome. Yeah, I couldn't wrap my head around that. A database independent does not make sense to me. Like usually you have something to compare with. Uh, just as like a guideline of sorts and to use unknowns to like identify unknowns. It just, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like you're still using a known, but you're not necessarily, it's sort of like the databases, and this is particularly true when you're talking with environmental samples, when you're talking about non-human samples, is I can put my stuff, my environmental samples that I have and try to figure out what's in the microbiome of an environmental sample, try to figure out what microbes are in there. But if I'm trying to figure it out against a human microbiome database, I'm only going to find human microbiome. I'm not going to find the novel stuff that's in the environment. They're just going to pop up as unknowns. And that's like kind of that dark matter, that we know it exists, but we don't really know what it is. And you're not going to find it by looking at a database of knowns. It's in a different realm. And you have to come up with these really creative and innovative 
database independent approaches to get to that deeper level of understanding of what is in the microbial world. It's kind of theoretical, huh? Yeah. Kind of deep, deep, deep thinking of deep matter, you know? But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like if you think of 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when we were, we're talking Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and all those people, they didn't have a database to go against anything, right? Their dark matter was this E. coli they could grow on on a petri dish. Their dark matter was the anthrax that they were finding in the soil. And they had to tie that to something that no one else was thinking of before. True, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's just like where we are with um, sequencing. So, like we said, we'll try to touch upon everyone's talk, but it will be rather quick. And, you know, some talks we didn't have a complete understanding with because they were so far over our head. So the first person that we're going to talk about is Francesco Sanicar, who talked about metagenomic profiling of the unexplored diversity of the human microbiome. Did you have any big takeaways from this talk? Pretty much all I got is a newer version of Metaflan. Yeah, which I guess is sort of another interesting thing is a lot of the creators from a lot of these packages or softwares we use in microbiome were there and they were all talking about comparing these different packages to each other and having sort of different results on what is the best one. Right. So the big takeaway before I get into nitty gritty, I guess, like is there was a lot more data used in this conference than I've seen before. They're like using whole genomes and Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of genes. Yeah, it was was crazy the amount of data that they were looking at. But at at least my takeaway is there's a newer version of Metaflan used to do metagenomic analysis. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, Metaflan, for those people that don't know, it's a package that you can use to identify microbes. I believe it's marker based, meaning that it looks for certain genes in your genome to identify it. it doesn't go against the whole genome. It's not doing any sort of it's not just looking at the 16S. It's looking at a couple of different genes in order to identify it. And it uses NCBI, which is another database, a really big database that has a lot of good information. It has a lot of junk in it too. So you can get some erroneous things there as well. So we can move on then to Li Ping Zhao. So Li Ping had his talk. On, or Did you have anything with Yang, Yang Yulu? Uh, he was very passionate about his talk. <laughs> um, so this was very hard because it was very mathematical like there was a lot of mathematical equations in his presentation and i mean he touched upon how the microbiome is highly personalized and if there if it has stability like is it stable over time that was like one of the big questions he was trying to answer and that's what did he say i don't remember if he said if it's stable or not i heard some people say that microbiomes are stable but I don't necessarily believe that. Well, I think in their talks, even it was stable, but you know, they're still we're still saying drivers like medical intervention, intervention, diet, lifestyle. What are you eating? Uh, who are the people you're interacting with? What are the bacteria interacting with? Even if it's a bacteria to bacteria, or bacteria to ba- a bacteriophage, or bacteria to fungi, which was not touched upon at all in this conference. But yeah, it was like they're stable, but. There's 16 trillion things that makes it unstable. Did you have anything else to add? No, no, I did not. 
So let's move on uh, to Li Ping, Li Ping Zhao. Um, he had a talk entitled Reference-Free and Guild-Based Approach for Analyzing Gut Microbiome Data. And this was probably the first talk that I had like sort of an aha moment, sort of this mind shift ideology on uh, what he was talking about. And whether or not you think he's right or wrong, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just... The, the concept of always constantly challenging the way that we think, because maybe we're getting into a path or in a rut where we believe something is true because it's what is done and not because it's true. And I think that that kind of goes back to the database using databases. So this, this is one of the first talks, I think, that brought up that concept of having database-free annotation, database-free assembly and to think more about the interconnection relationship and less about microbes as a single entity. Yeah, he was the first one that was looking not at species, but he he gathered microbes into what he called guilds. And my understanding was it wasn't based off of what species they were, but what function did that guild have? And he really set out to say that like your microbiome has a redundancy in the amount of function bacteria have. Yeah, I mean, but it wasn't so much function, but environment. So the idea of guilds comes from macroecology, it comes from studying ecosystems. And it's sort of the idea that when an environmental shift occurs, a group of uh, organisms, animals, if you will, if you're talking about an ecosystem, they're going to respond positively in, in such a situation, and another group may respond negatively. And so those groups are guilds. Yeah, I guess I, uh, I was thinking of the next thing down because he grouped the bacteria based on nodes within the guild. I think that's what I was trying to say, actually. Yeah, so he's, he's thinking more small networks of genomes that work together in an ecosystem. And he looked at fiber and really how that, that changed the, the ratio of the guild. Yeah, and I think fiber was something that was also a pretty heavy string in the whole Microbiome Data Congress. A lot of people talked about fiber, high fiber diets, and how evolutionarily back uh, ancestrally our, our ancestors as humans had a lot more fiber in their diet. And so our microbiomes that evolved with those ancestral humans are used to having that fiber intake. And it's only in the last 100 or 150 years that we've kind of cut out fiber. And it's only in the last 100 and 150 years that we're seeing the plethora of gut microbiome or gut disorders that we're now seeing as a commonplace today. And so it's sort of there is a, a pretty heavy train of thought that fiber and diversity of fiber is really beneficial for stability and microbiome as a whole. So if you're not getting your fiber, take this as a little reminder to go have some. So what's the next talk we saw? So in the next section was on machine learning and modeling of the microbiome. And this was um, an interesting set of speakers, some really fantastic speakers in this session that, you know, frankly, I didn't really know about prior to going to the conference, and I was really impressed by the level that they had. So the first one was Jorg Gerber, which I've heard his name pronounced 16 different ways at the conference from people that I think were like his postdocs and his colleagues. So I don't actually know. I've heard it George. I've heard George, Gorg, Jorg. So I'm really sorry if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly, but I've heard it many a different way. 
So he had a, a talk on novel machine learning methods for gaining insights into complex and dynamic host microbial ecosystems with what the heck does that mean? There's not much I can provide here because what he was talking about went over my head. Um, I know that they were looking at C. diff infections and at, initially they predicted uh, stable quote-unquote subcommunities that were optimal at treating or resisting C. diff infections. I think I think one thing that I really took away from this talk was talking about the challenges, the computational challenges that occur. There's a lot of challenges. Everyone's sequencing all the time now, but I don't think people really truly understand how complicated sequences are to analyze. They're super easy to sequence now. It's it's fairly cheap, but it's not pennies. It's still in the hundreds of dollars when you're talking about metagenomics. You still have to produce a large quantity of um, data that you're not going to be able to process on your computer. You're, a lot of people can't even process it on a desktop computer. At this point, you have to be on the cloud, especially when we're working with these big data sets. It's not cheap when you're talking about, even if it's hundreds per sample, you still need a lot of samples in order to have a study that's going to work. So that's why if you ever have your genome sequence or your microbiome sequence and you see that price tag, it's over $100. I mean, that is what it costs to, to get it sequenced, to get it analyzed and to understand. But also as a side note, understand that when you put your stuff into that, you're really feeding into a larger database so that they can do better science later on and the science that they're giving you, well, it'll, it'll probably improve in a year or two and what you're getting now is probably not as accurate as you think it may be. Anyways, not to knock down getting your microbiome sample because we did do that and it's fun and it's kind of interesting to do, but it is sort of like one of those things where you're kind of paying um, to understand what is in your microbiome at that date and time. And uh, it can take some time to really understand and interpret those results. Quite overwhelming, too, especially when you look at all the different microbes in your gut. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And I mean, there's other challenges going back to computational challenges that these bioinformaticians are facing. You're talking about noisy data. A lot of time you have to throw away a lot of the data output that you have because it is contamination, it comes from the host, bad quality. So you get all this noise you have to work around too. I mean, it's sort of like trying to narrow in or focus in on something when um, you're in New York City and there's just sirens all the time and you can't really like think or read a book. And then it's the fact that when we are creating models, we're, we create these models to be simple and they're never going to scale up to perfection in human because we're way more complicated than what the computer models can comprehend. Yeah, at this time, yeah, there's way too many variables. They can only do so much, but they're getting better every time. I mean, as we as we understand more and more, we're able to update those models. Like you already said it, you know, like you can get your microbiome sequenced right now, but you only know so much in 10 years from now you can know so much more or understand it completely differently. Exactly, yeah. That's kind of, I think he just had a really good way of summing up the state of bioinformatics. It's still very young. There's still a lot of challenges. There are a lot of challenges in microbiome, but we have to start and we have to go where we are now to move forward. And we have to use these kind of basic models in order to raise it up to more complex designs. But speaking about moving forward, let's talk about our next presentation. Sure. 
I was like pro podcast level transition. I get that every once every hundred episodes, I suppose. Oh, you haven't even hit a hundred episodes. Yeah, well, that was our first one. That was the first one. I have to wait another hundred hundred episodes. Yeah, I, I checked off that mark. Oh, you man! All right, so Ophelia Venturelli. She did a talk on predicting and designing community level functions of the human gut microbiome. I think I understood the overall version of this and. Again, like this is simplified because she's looking at 25 bacteria, different bacteria, but they're highly representative and she wants to design microbes that can have the same or give off the same function at large scale as like your microbiome community. Can we, can we make a community that has all the functions that our natural gut microbiome have? And what she did is it's really cool. She... She had a robotic arm. She showed a little video and she's mixing matching microbes together and she's using this robotic arm and it's just like hundreds of little plates and it's like moving around. Hundreds of little plates with hundreds of little holes in them with tens of little microbes. And I guess it's hundreds of little microbes, but tens of different species or, or kinds of microbes in them. And she's mixing and matching and looking at all different stuff. And at one point she really focused on butyrate and... Just a quick thing that's a short chain fatty acid. And really that's butyrate is one that's that's focused on because it's shown like in many studies that has beneficial effects. Yeah. It's created by microbes, right? It's a yes. microbial derived metabolite. Yes. Something that microbes poop out and our bodies are like, yum, 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 yum. Coming from fiber. Coming from fiber, right. High fiber diets. Get some butyrate. Feed your microbes. So I guess the biggest thing she said which was really cool is so you would think like if you put all these bacteria that make butyrate you would have like a lot of butyrate relatively to other microbes but that wasn't true there were microbes that didn't make butyrate that caused the ones that made butyrate to make even more so it was that combination Mm. that made the most butyrate oh i didn't even pick that up and that was why i took off i'm like oh that's really cool so it's like No, you don't need microbes that make butyrate specifically. You need that synergistic companionship between ones that do and ones that don't. The ones that don't are making something that does make butyrate really happy. So Right, yeah. And I think it goes back to that idea that we have to stop thinking, like we sequence microbiomes, we sequence communities, but we sequence them in in today's standards basically to tease them apart and say what are the individuals and what are their functions. But I think, yeah, it goes back to that theme of the whole conference that we need to stop thinking of microbiomes as single entities, but as relationships, as interactions, as small communities or large communities that are just trying to survive and in turn affect the host or host affects them. I really liked what she said. She's building microbiomes from the bottom up. That was one of the things that she said. And I think it has a really nice element to it of where sometimes with sequencing, we take from samples and we're kind of doing this bottom or top down approach where we're taking from these complex communities and trying to tizzle or tweeze out the functions. And she's like, well, let's start with a less complex system and see if we can build those functions which is a different way, again, kind of challenging the way that we are always thinking about microbiomes and flipping it upside down and trying to think about it in a different sect. That's cool. Should we move on to Travis? Yes. 
Okay, so I will admit the the next two, I don't really have anything. I think at that time I was getting really hungry. Well, that makes sense. Anyways, I think Travis, I hope that we can get Travis on the podcast. He was an amazing speaker. He was fantastic. Um, he comes from Harvard, so he's he's a local boy. I think he's wicked cool. But he did a talk called Embracing Uncertainty When Studying the Microbiome. Um, I just think that he had a certain level of energy with this talk, which is always just very gravitating. It always just sucks you in. And, and so I, I really like that. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S. E-A-R-C-H dot com. So he talked about two different programs that he developed or softwares that he developed called MD Sign and Chronostream. But I think there are some other aspects instead of um, talking about the softwares, but talking about some of the higher level points that he made. So one thing I guess that also came up a number of times in, in some talks, maybe not enough to put in as a theme, but this idea of sampling and sampling uniformly. So when people are designing experimental designs, they're usually like, okay, we're going to do this time series. We're going to take, we're going to do this time series. It's going to be two weeks. So we'll take a sample every single day for two weeks. And that's 14 samples. And statistically, that should make sense, right? Right. It's evenly distributed. And he kind of was like, no, let's stop doing that. Like that doesn't necessarily make sense to do these perfect increments. It's we want to know and we want to see when you do something, whatever the something that you were doing in your experiment, whenever that happens, that's where the shift occurs. And that's what you want to capture. So he's saying, you know, instead, He's saying instead of looking at uniformly sampling, so just saying, okay, we're going to do, we, we only have the funds for 14 sampling, so let's do one a day. You sample more densely at the time of change. So whenever you're making that change, you want to have sampling occur before, you want to have sampling occur right after, and maybe a couple hours after that. But then when the microbiome is going to come back to that stability that we're talking about, because we're not impacting anything, we're not changing anything, you don't have to sample as densely. So maybe, you know, that first day where you're making that change, you have three or four different samplings, and then maybe you go one day and then maybe two days away, um, which I thought was sort of, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me when someone says it to me, but it's definitely not something that I ever really did in my own experimentation. I mean, neither did I. Like, we waited 
at least 12 hours, I believe, until... Yeah, and so you, you miss kind of that change. You miss sort of how that change is occurring and what is happening to get to that stable point. You get the before and you get the stable point, but you miss the in-between, which, I mean, looking at it, that's the most interesting, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was like a really unique point i mean it's not it's not even like that novel i don't really know why it's something that was such a mind shift for me but it was a total mind shift and i will never think of sampling the same afterwards so thank you travis i learned something from you i think i think the the one other thing that i think was kind of interesting from his talk is this idea of keystone taxa which i don't think we've ever talked about i don't think so either so basically, they're, they're this idea, this keystone. This is another aspect in microbiology that was taken from macroecology. And it's sort of this idea that there are taxa that are connected to a lot of other taxa. They're very important to an ecosystem, to the microbial ecosystem. And if you take them out, the whole ecosystem is going to collapse. Well, not the whole, but a lot, a lot the, the whole ecosystem infrastructure is going to change. They're that important, you know? It's sort of like, you know, the influencers. Right. They're, they're the microbiome influencers. And without them, who would we follow? I don't know, actually. Exactly. So, yeah, this kind of idea, these keystone, keystone taxa. Um, and then this idea that there are, you might get thousands of reeds, thousands of microbes in your gut when you sequence it. and there, But there's only a few that represent the most read. So in the talk that Travis gave, he showed that, you know, they had thousands of reads from these metagenomic studies from the sequencing of microbiomes, but only 10 microbes represented 90% of these reads. And the other 990 reads only consisted of the last 10% of those reads. Crazy. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next session. So we had uh, practical tools for microbial omics, which was a fun session as well. First talker was Henry Bjorn Nielsen. He did a talk on ultra-high-resolution microbiomics and phenotypic association and graphment profiling in the data integration. What the heck does that mean, John? I only focus on a couple things, actually, because it relates to my work. I mean, this is a, he was a, this is a clinical microbiomics is really a company. Right. Yeah. We should say that he's a chemical company. Yeah. So my, my understanding is this is like taking your, they're able to take your samples and pretty much like try to process them to get your data with at least amount of bias as possible. Yeah. And so they have like their, I, I believe it's their own private database and they're able to get 90% of your microbiome to identify 90% of your microbiome because they have this really big elaborate database. Right. And I, I say biases because every step you do, you do to try to figure out what these microbes are, uh, you introduce a little bit of something that skews the data a little bit. And so what he did yeah, plus when you're talking about that noise. This, right. This data is noisy and you don't really know what is real and what is contamination. So that's another filtering process and right. the point where you have to try to get down to what is reality. I mean, even getting the DNA from the cells has a bias. And that's what mm -hmm. I focused on because to extract DNA, not all bacteria are the same. 
So they're they're implementing methods to try to reduce that. Uh-huh. But yeah, that's the biggest takeaway is their company focused on trying to remove the amount of biases seen in uh, metagenomics to try to give you a clearer image. Right. So anything else you have to add for Bjorn? No, some things I'm going to try to work, though. Okay, well, let us know how they go. Okay, next up is Antonio Camargo, which he has a little pun in his title. And you know this girl, this girl, your girl, Tess, she love a pun. So uh, his title was, you can move, but you can't hide identifying mobile genetic elements with Genomad. (laughs) I love it. But it was the first one, first talk of the whole conference that dealed with not bacteria, which is, you know, refreshing. So it really focused on large scale and identification of viruses and plasmids Mm -hmm. or circular DNA in bacteria and other microbes. Yeah, it was identification and annotation. And Antonio is at JGI, which if you don't know, is the Joint Genome Institute. It's one of the biggest, probably giants in metagenomics and in genomics and bioinformatics. They're huge. So that was, um, you know, I, I love the pun in his talk. I always appreciate when people can add a little bit of comedy to what they're doing. And also I love when people can talk about things that are not talked about by everybody else every like i think 90 percent was bacteria human microbiome but other things exist and antonio gave us a very nice presentation on viruses and plasmids again i also liked his energy he had a lot of good energy during his presentation too i may not have understood it but i did enjoy it yeah he was definitely fun so let's talk about ben callahan who, if you don't know is the creator of data too he is a huge giant the diet 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 i said data the data science. I mean, he's the only giant in the data science because he invented data. Anyways, he's a huge giant in data science. And he gave a talk on maximizing resolution with Data2 and long read sequencing. So if you don't know, Data2 is used in what we call amplicon sequencing, which is when we sequence just one single gene of a microbe, of, of several microbes at a time. And we identify it based on that one single gene. So again, I mean, it's sort of like if I chopped off uh, John's pinky, the tip of it, his nail, right? And I gave it to you and I said, hey, can you identify where this came from? And you'd be like, no. That's sort of what we're doing with, 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 with microbes. We're just taking a little piece of them and then we're asking the computer, hey, can you identify this? And typically what we're doing is we tell the computer, go find a database to figure out whether what it is. So this is a... Um, this is a database-driven approach, but it's typically done with really short fragments. But with new sequencing technology, we now can get longer fragments. And so Ben Callahan gave a little presentation of how you can use Data2, which was traditionally used to identify microbes, which is 250 base pairs or so, or sometimes even smaller. But now you can use it to identify at a much longer reads. Um, you can sequence the entire 16S genome now, which is about 1,500 base pairs. I mean, it's 1,500 base pairs in E. coli. It's a little bit different for every single microbe, but that's besides the point. We're not talking about variability here. But now we can sequence that entire gene and then put it to the database. Now we have a lot more information. I mean, it's like if I chopped off John's head and gave it to you, you probably have a better idea if it was John than if I just gave you a pinky, right? I mean, that's that that's an analogy. I like analogies. Morbid analogies. Chapping up my co-host. <laughs> what I took away from this, uh, you, you pretty much said it, but just to elaborate a little, elaborate a little bit more is 
really the longer the length of DNA when you sequence it, generally the more error rate is introduced. But now we're at the shorter it is, the more accurate it is. But now we reached kind of like this middle point between short and long. And you have to like put these together in the end, right? And Well, he was sort of saying there's there's different use cases. Right. Right, so between the short and long. And you can do hybrid assemblies. You can get long reads and short reads and put them together. Now you have even more power to kind of come up with whole genome assemblies. Um, but yeah, he was sort of saying there is a spot for these long read amplicon sequencing using data to algorithm. Yeah, so like, uh, as I was alluding to, you could assemble probably genomes easier this way, but also it allows you to be to discriminate more and identifying what bacteria species you're looking at too, depending on what you're doing. Exactly. So I do think this is a perfect time to bring in our sponsor because Ben Callahan used our sponsor in this study. He used the Zymoma community plus pack bio hi-fi sequencing reads plus data two algorithm, which is his little baby, to do 16S sequencing and to identify what was there. And he said they found perfect, perfect recovery of all full-length 16S sequences. He said he found no false positives. He could find all copies of the 16S for all of the species within the mock community, of all the strains in the mock community, which is one, I mean, a point for Zymo for having a mock community that is fantastic and used across giants of the data science field. And two, I mean, when do you ever hear about a study that's perfect? Perfect recovery. Never. So, I mean, I will say, you know, he kind of knew what was in that mock community. So it was a little bit easier, I guess, to, to get perfection. Um, it's not as complex as, as real gut microbiome. So, I mean, there are some stuff there, but it's still pretty cool that he was able to get to that point. Okay, moving on to Zheng Sun. So he had a talk entitled Decoding Low Biomass or degraded microbiomes using reduced metagenomic sequencing method of 2B-RAD, which I also like the name, 2B-RAD. Everyone's 2B-RAD. And he makes all the microbes 2B-RAD. Yeah, so, I mean, this was just, like, another talk that was talking about assembly-free metagenomic profiles. He thinks it is the future. But he also kind of broke down how we are looking at microbiome uh, identification at this point. So there are, if you don't know, if you never did bioinformatics, totally fine. But there is probably 16 trillion different software packages you can use. And as a bioinformatician, you have to decide which one you're going to use. And usually you have to decide which one to use in less than 10 minutes. So I mean, good luck researching every single paper in the last two decades of what happened in bioinformatic software to figure out which one is the best. It's impossible. But basically, there are, I don't know, probably 15 different ways that you can identify microbes in metagenomic studies. So in metagenomic studies, we are sequencing the entire genomes of a lot of microbes, typically bacteria, because that's the one that everybody loves the most. But some people do it for fungi. Although it is a lot harder to capsulate fungi genomes because they're so much bigger and more complex because they're eukaryotic, not prokaryotic, made of one chromosome. But that's besides the point. At any rate, so... If you have a metagenomic study, you sequence all the genomes of your bacteria, and now you want to understand what bacteria are there. There are three different methods that you can use to identify these microbes. One is DNA to DNA. So this is a DNA to DNA homology. So this is used by programs like um, Bracken, Kraken, and 
I think I had an autocorrect on my <laughs> my thing. I don't, I'm not really showing this. Anyways, it's used by Bracken and Kraken. So these use DNA to DNA homology to identify what your bacteria is. Then you're going to have DNA to marker. So we talked a little bit about marker genes. 16S is a marker gene. These are genes that are found in every single species, right? And they're, they're going to have a certain similarities in certain groups of microbes to help you identify. So in 16S, that is a single marker gene, but you can have multiple marker genes, multiple of these kind of conserved genes to identify your microbes. And this is what's done by Metaflan, which we talked about in the first aspect of this talk, and also in MOTUs. So it's DNA to marker. And then you have DNA to protein identifiers as well. And this is what Kaiju and Diamond uses. So I just thought that was sort of an interesting aspect, which I didn't really think about, but totally makes sense that, you know, how can you really compare all these different technologies or all these different taxonomy identifiers when they all fundamentally are comparing different things? That was my biggest takeaway with Zhang Sun's on metabolic profiling. And the last one of this section was the Cosmos ID Hub. Yeah, so they kind of just have a full-length, full-scale platform, end-to-end metagenomic solution. Uh, it looks very user-friendly. I had a chance to play around with it. I really like it. High-resolution strain identification. They have validations by um, Mosaic and the FDA. It looks pretty cool. So my understanding was of this was you take your your reads, you plug it into to their platform, and it does everything for you pretty much, right? And even you can get publicly published data from previous studies, throw that in there, and it can also use all that data as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seemed like a pretty complete platform, so um, looked kind of cool. So the last portion of day one of the Microbiome Data Congress was integrating metabolomics into microbiome studies. So first up, we have Kathy McCoy, who had a talk on using notobiology to assess microbiome contributions to the metabolic landscape. So I'll be honest, uh, metabolomics is not something that I am super that I know a lot about. And so it was, it was challenging for me to follow along with these, but I know that you have a lot more experience with metabolomics, Jonathan. So what did you think of Kathy McCoy's research talk? So there was a couple of takeaways about this. So she uses germ-free mouse model. And what she pretty much used that was to see what is the microbiome making like what compounds, what metabolites are they making? And what are they doing to the mouse or to us? So pretty much the biggest takeaway was she looked at this uh, compound called D-lactate. It's just a form of lactate. And she was able to show that it programs macrophages in the liver so that they can actually remove potential pathogens, which was Cool, because in the germ-free mouse model, if you introduce a pathogen, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll go into the liver. A specific pathogen, I can't remember which one, but the macrophages haven't been programmed. They haven't got that signal, so they can't destroy that pathogen. Mm. But this this chemical like activates them, so it's 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 a signal that they receive, and they're able to then effectively destroy this pathogen. So it's it's just showing that. 
we're not the only ones that are determining how it works. It's our gut microbiome is also giving information to our immune system to act on potential pathogen. So our gut microbiome, like our quote unquote healthy one, can help uh, trigger immune system, not trigger, but activate our immune system to be on the prowl for any potential pathogens. Mm, turn against our own tie, I see how it is. Mm. Benedict Arnold's The Microbiome Universe. And she, she talked about, you know, other potential metabolites, but that's pretty much the sum of it is like microbes, their metabolites, we need them to function normally. Right? Definitely. Microbes are helpful. Love them. Next up, which I'm sure you have something to say about Sloane Devlin, she did a talk on discovery of microbial metabolites and activities using targeted and untargeted metabolomics. And I think we're going to try to get her on the podcast, right? I'm going to try. She was so cool. This lady, amazeballs. So I have a little issue here. Like oh, I was, oh, we didn't like her? No, I did like her, but I was so enthralled in the conversation that I don't have many notes. Oh, so maybe we'll just have to get her on the podcast. <laughs> so pretty much what she was saying is she, so we have bile acids. I've talked about it before. What they do is they break down fat to smaller amounts that we can absorb into our body. Not only that, they can, depending on what form they are, they can inhibit potential pathogens, but they can also be signals for other bacteria to do other things. Not only that, they're actually signals for our own, our own immune system and they regulate how we make bile acids. So it's almost a self-regulatory Wait, system. Our bile acids regulate how we make bile acids. It's weird, but yes. And our microbes regulate how our bile acids make bile acids. Yes. It's it's a dynamic system. And our microbiome regulates the immune system, which helps regulate the bile acids, which helps regulate the immune system, which helps regulate the microbiome, which helps the bile. <laughs> yeah, no. The bile acids regulate the immune system. The immune system doesn't regulate the bile acids. But so pretty much she was able to find new forms of bile acids. And why did we not see them before? Well, due to the way we can measure. How do we measure bile acids? We use high pressure liquid chromatography. HPLC. Yes. Wow. So the issue with some of these is they're hidden with other bile acids. You can't differentiate them on that method. So I forget what she used, but she got. She was able to get new, you know, newer technology, and she was able to separate these two out and see them. Now, there was one, it was called 3-oxalithicolic acid, which ended up inhibiting TH17 cells, which actually reduced inflammation because those cells in the immune system are responsible for inflammation. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so there's a bile acid. Yeah, so it's a, it's a new form of bile acid. Okay, no one found it before. Right. She found a new bile acid. Yeah. The new bile acid tells the T cells, tells the immune system they can't go and play. What it does is your immune system, you'll have ones, I can't remember which cells they were, but they will differentiate into these. They're called T helper 17 cells. Okay, T cells. Yes. So I believe it inhibits these TH17 helper cells or inhibits this the differentiation. Why is this important? Well, some like irritable bowel disease, these cells are differentiated and they're spewing out chemicals that cause inflammation. This actually helps prevent inflammation in the gut. So this new bile acid might help stop the T cells from causing IBD. 
I don't know if they're causing it or exacerbating it. We don't know the exact cause of IBD. They may alleviate symptoms of IBD caused by T-cells. Yeah, because they're releasing chemicals that cause that. And there's another one that she discovered, but I can't remember what it was. It was at the end, but it actually specifically inhibited C. diff. Oh, so she was looking at C. diff and IBD. Yeah. So if you can enrich your gut microbiome, that can transform bile acids to these specific ones, which she found bacteria that did, then it it would theoretically help prevent C. diff infections or help with IBD symptoms. And that was the big thing I got out of it, and that was really cool. And not, not only that, she was, like, really confident. She it spoke clearly. And, you know, like, I have background in bile acids, so I'm like, this is shit's cool. So cool. So cool. So cool. Yeah. Wicked cool. Yeah. I mean, she's another one I think we'll probably try to get on the podcast at some time. No promises, but I really hope we can get her on because she was amazing. And I want to share how amazing she is with everybody, with you all, with you people. Y'all. Y'all. Anyways, this is probably going to be a part two. So this whole episode was a surprise, but it's a surprise part two, two-parter here. Um, The second part will probably be ad-free. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. As always, thank you for listening. And remember to have your fiber today. Remember to have your fiber. Remember, love your microbes. Love your guts. Feed them fiber. They love it lots. (laughs) Amazing. Bye. Bye.